Hello. You have asked for it. Todd Conklin. Todd Conklin. The interview with Todd Conklin from the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast is here. Now on Safety FM. Welcome to Safety FM, where we talk about safety that's truly inspired by you. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast has been brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. They're consultants that are wanting to help you get to the safety culture that you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen and today is the day that we've been talking about for about a month now. Today is our interview with Dr. Todd Conklin, host of the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. I will tell you, I am not going to spend a lot of time discussing about Dr. Conklin. We are just going to jump right into the interview Take a listen to what he has to say. There's a lot of information that he goes over. So please make sure that you pay very, very close attention to this particular podcast. Enjoy it now here on Safety FM. SafetyFM.com with Jay Allen. Changing safety cultures one broadcast and one podcast at a time. So, Dr. Cochran, I appreciate you actually coming on to Safety FM. I appreciate everything that you have done for the industry. The first time that I had heard about you, I was inside of the ASSC meeting, the 2017 version, and they were talking about just the different concepts behind behavior-based safety and human organizational performance. It seemed more of a boxing match, and that's when I really discovered you, and I was like, those are the concepts that I believed in, and I wasn't even fully aware that that was a concept that somebody thought about. So, just hearing you speak up there, I was super amazed, so I appreciate you coming on to the show today. Oh, super amazed. I'm glad to be here. No problem at all, man. What a treat. Todd, what caused you to want to be involved in safety? So uh, probably like many people, um, I was a reluctant safety person. I didn't think about being involved in safety. I was really involved in how organizations function. So my background and and all the stuff I do is around sort of uh, kind of on the industrial organizational side of the house. So I look at how organizations function. And out of that, I did lots of stuff in leadership and lots of stuff with workers who want to build better teams, more functional teams, more efficient teams. And uh, I was working at this place, Los Alamos National Laboratory, which was a great place, a really amazing place to work. And uh, they came and said, hey, we have this new requirement for our high-risk facilities to look at human performance, we think you're a perfect fit for it. Are you interested? And I said, sure, maybe. I didn't really pay much attention. And they sent me to a meeting in Atlanta at a place called INPO, which is the Nuke Operations Learning Center. It's probably a good way to describe INPO. And they look at all the, the commercial nuclear power plants in the United States. And they were right at the cusp of a, of a journey on human performance. And they were being led by a guy named Tony Mashara, who's just a phenomenal person. He's really a sweet guy. I started looking at these processes and looking at these ideas and thinking about how um, effective this was, how much more effective it was than Aubrey Daniels' ABC model. Not that Aubrey Daniels is a bad guy or the ABC model is bad, but I was pretty certain that most behavior was not a product of consequence. In fact, I was relatively certain that most behavior was a product of context. It was a product of the 
the A part of the uh, ABC model. And so I started looking at that and geez, that was probably 25 years ago. That was a long time ago. And it just kind of started from there. Pretty soon my career was only about safety and it wasn't very much about the other stuff I used to do. And yet all the other stuff I used to do fit in perfectly to that safety side of the house. So. So that's, uh, that's kind of my origin story. So then at that particular point, when do you determine to have the conversation with people that we are doing safety wrong as an industry and how are you able to verbalize this? Well, so it's, it's really kind of a, there's a journey to this conversation because at first I didn't think we were doing safety wrong because uh, I mean, there was really only one way to do safety and that was you told people to get safer. And then you told them over and over and over again to get safer. And then you built systems where you could observe them and tell them to get safer. And then you, you got behavioral-based safety programs where you had peers tell them to be safer. And at the time, you know, my belief was the problem was that the workers needed to be safer. And what this new view, the safety differently view did was kind of forced me to look at things beyond the workers. In fact, it was the, the moment where I realized that the worker's not the problem to be fixed. The worker's the solution. If you treat the worker as a problem, then you're going to constantly be frustrated with workers. But if you treat the workers as a solution, what you start to see is improvement right away. And it's a really interesting, if you, if you look at the journey that most organizations take, the journey kind of starts with the realization that human error is normal. And for a while, that becomes really super attractive that you look at how people make mistakes and you think, what we need to do is mistake proof the organization. We need to make sure people don't make mistakes. So we'll put in a lot of systems in there to create mistake free. We'll mistake proof the system. We'll, we'll idiot proof this process. We'll make it so that they never make mistakes. But then after a while, you realize huh, mistakes are just normal, but mistakes aren't bad or good. They're just part of the normal fabric of being a human being. People are fallible and they make lots of mistakes. And good performers probably make more mistakes than bad performers because good performers have more opportunities to screw up. And so then once you sort of get over the mistake thing, then you start thinking about the blame thing. And the blame thing in my mind is kind of the big, that's, that's the one. It, it, it's the realization somehow that blaming doesn't fix anything. And once people understand that, oh, when I blame a guy for screwing up, when I blame a guy for cutting his hand, I've emotionally met my needs to sort of de determine who is at fault, but I haven't actually done anything to fix the thing that cut the guy's hand. So you have to kind of look at error and then you look at blame. And once you look at error and look at blame, then the old systems the systems that we've used historically that have actually carried quite a bit of water for us, those systems aren't very effective. And then the final thing is this quite amazing realization that there's a limit to compliance. And this is kind of a big deal, but there is a limit to compliance. You're in a position, and the people who listen to you are probably definitely in this position, where more rules do not create more safety. In, in fact, for the most part, rules as a foundation are pretty good because they set expectations, but rules themselves are not control. They don't actually manage behavior. Rules are expectations for what we want. And lots of times there's a misalignment between the expectation of what we want and the system in which we put the worker to do the work. That was a pretty long answer. 
But it, it, that's it, like but an you, extra that's an extra credit answer. <laughs> Absolutely, but you have a lot of information inside of there, and I think that that is sometimes our misconceptions. It's okay, all of a sudden now somebody injured their hand, but we did absolutely nothing to correct the problem. And I've been, and I'm involved mostly in the transportation industry. And I'm amazed watching on how we have different organizations that will terminate a, a vehicle operator opposed to trying to coach and correct the issue that might have caused an accident to occur. So listening to you say even that. Even more importantly, even more importantly to learn from it. So the coaching correction is good. That's great, right? That's, that's good we can coach the worker be more careful we can correct the system make it harder to back into something but the bottom line is that primarily at the foundational level what we have to do is create an opportunity to learn and the problem with blame is that blame is the opposite of learning so when we go to blame we have sort of the emotional payoff it it, it actually gives us our confirmation it, it tells us okay we fixed the problem but in fact we haven't fixed anything we fixed blame we haven't fixed the worker and blame just it, blame doesn't make a system better. I mean, it, it just doesn't. If you lose your car keys, you can blame yourself all day long for losing your car keys. But I'll bet you a nickel at some point you go to the car dealer and, and you get another key. That's actually a solution, you know, and it has nothing to do with blame. It has everything to do with fixing the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And I'll tell you, I was behavior-based safety for a long period of time, at least mentally. And then look, just kind of some of the shifts like that came across as I kept on being more and more involved in safety. I have to start changing some of the wording that I use because I wanted to fall to some of the things that I used to do. But as I look into human organizational performance, I just look at it and go, this is such a better aspect where it has a better understanding on how it should work by really getting some of the opinions of the employee slash team members. When you think about changing the vocabulary, because words matter, right? Absolutely. What you're really telling me is you're, you're changing the questions. So you're not just changing the vocabulary, you're changing the questions you ask. And when you ask different questions, you get different answers. And to me, that's the most obvious part of this sort of shift towards new view, this shift towards this new safety, is that what we're changing is really not anything except the question. So when you move from asking what failed as opposed to asking who failed, you just, you just get different answers because it's a different question. So the traditional thing is a guy cuts his hand. So who failed? How did he fail? You know, why did he fail? So now if a guy cuts his hand, you say, what failed? So instead of looking at the guy in the hand, because you have to have that to cut your hand, you start looking at the system in which the guy was performing the work and you start asking questions. Why does this have sharp edges on it? I mean, does it have to have sharp edges on it? And a lot of times people say, no, it doesn't have to. And the reason we're normally successful is because people are normally pretty careful. But if you get any kind of a variability, any kind of anomaly in the system, that carefulness that you normally count on to be dependable goes away and you fail. So as you answer some of these questions, I mean, just out of curiosity, how did you come up with the concept of human organizational performance? So the name's really interesting. I'm not in love with that name by any stretch of the imagination. But when they started the program, Impo and and really, I mean, it's been a, there's a lot of people to thank. James Reason was a part of this, and and the Institute for Nuclear Power Operations. That's Impo. They were a part of it. Tony Mashara, Shane Bush. Um, there's a whole bunch of names in there. We used to call it human performance, and uh, and human performance is really good unless you're in the nuke industry because then you couldn't use the abbreviation HP because that actually stood for health physics. So we started calling it HU, and that didn't really work as well either. And when it started rolling out of the nuke industry into the rest of the world, this is a long time ago, 
There was some real pushback around calling it human performance, partially because it was kind of getting confused with human factors. And that's fair because the definition we use for human factors in the United States is quite different than the definition that's used for human factors in Europe. So there was some confusion there. And then there was this notion that it was still pretty focused directly on workers and that unions really had a hard time with rolling out a program called human performance because it focused on their members. So they, uh, they spread out the idea and said, well, let's call it human and organizational performance. And really, a, a guy named Kurt Kruger, um, who's, a, who's a blast from the past name, he sort of coined the phrase because he was doing a lot of work in Europe at the time and, and saw that, that potential name sort of being a part of, of the, the new angle. It's also got, the thing about these new ideas is that what you call them, it's, it's kind of like a, a movement, right? What you call them is sort of organic. So for a long time, we called it New View Safety or Safety Differently. That's a name that's kind of sticking now. But what it really is, is that it's safety that's focused away from sort of the big three. We don't, we don't see the workers as a problem. We see the workers as a solution. When you see the workers as a solution, then you want to go out and ask the workers what they need. And what really happens is we change the definition of safety. So traditionally, and a lot of people that are listening to this will tell you that safety is measured by the absence of failure. So we actually measure the OSHA reportable numbers, TRC and DART rate. We measure how many people we hurt. And obviously, if you hurt a lot of people, you suck at safety. But if you hurt fewer people, then you're really super good at safety. Well, that is kind of a notion of looking at safety as an output to be achieved or an output to be managed. What HOP does or what human performance does is it actually redefines safety not as an output, but as a capacity. So safety is not an end product. Safety is the way you do the work. So think of capacity the way you think about a gas tank in your car is that you manage the amount of gas you have based upon the trip you're going to take. So if you're going to take a long trip, you want your tank to be full because you don't want to run out of gas because if you run out of gas, you can't function. So you manage the capacity, you manage the ability to fail and fail safely. So when you describe this to somebody who believes in behavior-based safety, what is the biggest pushback that you normally get? Workers make bad decisions, make bad choices, they make risky choices, and that I'll never fix that. And that's really a, a cute argument. I mean, it's, you know, if workers just made better choices, we'd have safer workplace. It's kind of true. I mean, it's like saying people fall down because of gravity. Yeah, <laughs> they do. That's true. It's kind of incomplete, but it's pretty true. Behavioral-based safety people are really tied in. They've got a lot of invested emotional energy and, and usually a lot of invested programs. They spend a lot of money and a lot of time telling people some things that aren't true. And so it's hard for them. Like the belief that every accident is preventable is cute and always true in retrospect, but never true in context. Well, if every accident was preventable, then people would prevent every accident. But in fact, not every accident is preventable because accidents are really hard to predict. So you have to sort of tell the behavioral-based safety people that as, as great as this sounds, the bottom line is you really don't know what will fail next and your system is complex enough that you really can't predict with any great accuracy. Then you have to tell them that this belief that somehow the worker is the key, if you just make the worker better, if the worker made better choices or better decisions or did less at-risk behaviors, which I don't even really know what that means. That's totally kind of a made-up at-risk behavior. I mean, everything, if it fails, was risky. And there's risk in everything you do. So at-risk seems like a 
terribly sort of normative retrospective value to put on a worker and you'd mostly put it on the worker after it fails but if workers made better decisions you'd have better outcomes well it's, it's really important to help them understand help them understand that that's that's fundamentally just not true i mean they, they got sold a load of hay but it's kind of like the heinrich model i mean safety people are really 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 we're desperate to find some kind of predictive data and so we'll buy anything you know we'll buy the heinrich model we'll buy it for 60 years we'll, we'll believe truly that the lower level events control the higher level events which is just completely wrong and, and that was the interesting part because i will tell you with with behavior-based safety, I found videos online where they referenced that if you have a more professional worker, they should not be injured, which I find amazing that that's even listed. Wrong and it's malpractice. And the thing about it is that it's ethically really, 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 really a shitty thing to do to a worker. Absolutely, because it says you're not intelligent enough, you're not smart enough, you have not done enough work in the background on how we should be trained to be able to move forward with this. Right. If you'd have tried harder, you wouldn't have gotten hurt. That's oh, what we tell people all the time. Absolutely. And then I, I will tell you, I was a big cheerleader. I worked for a pretty big transportation company that they believe 329 and one. And I was a cheerleader and I was like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because there's some people that have been injured, but they didn't die and they didn't do anything stupid prior. So how did this happen? That's a hard battle because that's really ingrained. I mean, that's people really believe that. So you have to be kind of like, be, like, so I'm probably, um, I was probably a good personality type to do this because I'm this huge guy, right? And I don't really take anything seriously and almost nothing threatens me because, you know, I'm not really that threatened. And I come out of a academic background and I worked at a national laboratory. So I'm really used to really smart people calling me on my stuff. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll say, where's the citation for that? Own that, you know? And, and because I have a PhD, you know, I, I know how to do research and I know how to gather data and build a research question. I, I know how to do all that stuff. I mean, that's, that's what I know how to do, right? But I was able to sort of stand up against some pretty strong people and say, you know, ultimately the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. I mean, this, this is a really interesting idea, but it's wrong. And the bottom line is, is that really what we're talking about is an argument between the notion of free will. Do workers have free agency? Do they exercise free will in the workplace? And predeterminism, are workers part of a larger system? And the answer, you know, is not one or the other. That's pretty much why they, the, the, the reformation happened. We're not going to answer that on a podcast. But somewhere in there, you have to say, if we take extreme views one way or the other, we're probably in trouble. Workers don't really exercise free agency. And workers really are part of a bigger system. There's lots of pressures on workers, production and peer and all sorts of pressures that create a system that allow the workers to function. And what we want to manage, this is the big switch, is that this, this next move into safety, the change isn't really at the worker level. It's not at the coalface level. So now you got a program that you don't have to roll out to every driver in a transportation company. But you do have to roll it out to the senior leadership and to every leader in the transportation company. And you have to say to them, look, air is normal. Blame fixes nothing, learning is vital, and that how you react to a system colors how the system moves forward. The type of questions you ask color the answers you get. And that's the thing. I think that sometimes it's just trying to do change of that mindset in regards of the leadership of a company is very difficult for them to go, well, 
why aren't we implementing this? Why are we not doing, why are we not looking at X, Y, and Z that we looked at before? And how do we change that going forward? How are these systems going to work? And it's always difficult to have those conversations. Yeah, and it's scary. That's scary to them because they're giving up what's taken them so far. And there's a certain amount of sunk cost. You know, we put a lot of money in our BBS program. Although that's kind of going away. I mean, the thing about BBS is that I think people are starting to realize that behavioral-based safety is time intensive and it's pretty much financial intensive in most cases. It doesn't need to be, but most people buy a program. And we track a lot of stuff, but the stuff we track isn't very predictive and really isn't very important. So we have these big tracking systems where we measure stuff, but it's not very predictive and it doesn't help us. So we're measuring for the sake of measuring. But we got a really, really screwed up relationship with metrics anyway. And that's really more of a function of of the fact that we can't define what safety is. And safety is hard to define. There's no question about it. I love what uh, Eric Honigle calls safety. He says safety is a dynamic non-event. So, and that's a pretty good way to to define safety, but man, that's really, really academic. That's going to be hard to take and say a truck driver. Safety is what happens when nothing happens. That's pretty hard. I mean, you almost look at it from an engineering standpoint. If an engineer is not really doing anything, that's a good sign. If they're working on something, that normally means you have a problem. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably a good way to look at it. And then you look at resilience and all that stuff. It's it's a pretty sexy. I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting way to see the world. And it's, you know, it's it's fun because it's kind of on the cutting edge of thinking right now. So that's fun. And it's fun because it really does challenge old, really old, very almost permanently ingrained notions of what safe is. And it's fun because companies get better. I mean, the thing that I would tell you is that organizations that take the view that the worker is not the problem, the worker is the solution, get better. I I just worked with, in fact, yesterday I was at a place where they've had a lot of fatalities with people who do really high risk work. They trim trees and and I don't know if you know much about the logging industry, but you're 56 times more likely to die in that job than any other job in the world. It is real. It is the most dangerous job in the world, right? And for a long time, they just ask people not to fall off trees. Just don't fall. Don't fall. Do not fall. Well, you know, if you go to a construction project, uh, a big construction site where they're doing ironwork, they don't ask steel workers to not fall. They tell steel workers to wear a harness. So they're not, tr- they're not trying to control the presence of the fall. They just assume there's a 100% chance somebody's going to fall today. And when they fall, what they want to manage is their ability to fail safely, to have a margin of maneuverability. And that becomes really important as well. And that is the best way to look at it. And, and, and to answer your, your previous question, no, I'm not very familiar with the logging industry, but that sounds like a very high risk I guess. They should be on your podcast, man. You should go out and find a logger. It's very difficult to find that in Florida, but I will probably have to work on that and see how I can come up with that. Actually, I bet I bet you Florida, because of the uh, pulp and paper industry, mm-hmm. I bet you Florida has a lot of um, of people involved in logging. I bet that's not hard, actually. Okay, well, I'll have to take a look at it, and, and I'll tell you I'm in the... Not to call you. Not to call you. I, I mean, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm calling you it. out. I'm I, fine with it. I'm just telling you, Florida is a very amazing state to me. First of all, it's really... Anything that happens that's freaky in the world happens in Florida. You know, you, you live in a state where the murderer also murdered someone else and then murdered someone else, but got away with the first two murders until the third murder when they found that all three murders were. I'm just like, wow, that has to be Florida. Or people wear clown costumes and kill. I mean, just like, wow. 
that's Florida. We don't have that in New Mexico. Well, I'll tell you, it's much different here in Florida. I, and I was lucky or blessed enough a few weeks ago to actually be in New Mexico and I was out in the Taos area and it's night and day difference between Florida and New, yes, New Mexico for sure. For sure. You, should so. not, you should have not left, man. You should have just stayed in the Taos area. Oh, I was trying to convince my wife that we should stay there. Um, we went and visited some Earthship thing and it was very interesting. Oh yeah, I, those are cool. Aren't those cool? I, I, did, you get, did you go on the tour though? Oh, no, no, no. We stayed in them. We stayed in for two days. It was oh, very It, it, cool. it was very cool. interesting. So I loved it. I, I was. Did they have the real? Did they have the solar toilets or the real toilets? They they had the they had the real toilets because I was uh, I, I didn't yeah, want one of those compost toilets. toilets. The solar toilet is an idea that probably works in theory, but uh, does not really lend itself to practicality that much. You're basically you got a big black disc full of poop that you keep turning in the sun, and at some point you think, huh, there's probably a better way to do this. Oh, that's why they invented toilets. Yeah, it would almost feel like you're cooking. The poop to some extent wouldn't it? you are no that's, it's not almost that's what you're doing you're cooking it you're baking it well i have to ask you i want to ask you a couple of questions real quick i am an avid listener to the pre-accident investigation podcast during your first podcast and i know this was many years back you said that you were doing the podcast out of guilt do you feel do you still feel that way uh yeah there's a certain amount you'll see as you get into this there's a certain amount of obligation to a podcast and the reason is, is, and you know this because you have a background in broadcasting, is that the thing that makes a podcast successful is really a couple things. One is that it's regular, that they can count on the fact that on Wednesdays at noon and on Saturdays at noon, there's a new episode. So that's really important. So that's a commitment right there. Two is that it needs to be short enough that it's manageable in small bites and not boring. I mean, I, I would try to work really hard to make it not boring. And then three, it has to have some value. Those three things um, are not easy to manage simultaneously, but you have to manage them. So it, it's, I was probably getting some drama points by saying it was guilt, but there's, uh, there's definitely a sense of obligation. It seems like a good thing to do. At least with pre-accident, a lot of people listen to it. So, you know, you get, I don't know, I don't know how many hits you get, but I get a couple thousand a day downloads. So it's, it's, it's definitely got some impact and you hear people talk about it. I mean, I think a lot of people listen to it. It's interesting to me, and this will be something interesting to kind of watch on your podcast too, is, is the, the primary audience is probably safety people, but the biggest audience, the loudest audience, the audience that writes the most comments are high performance computing people. So um, it really kind of jumps across industries. So my podcast, there's lots of safety people, lots of competing people, lots of aviation people, lots and lots of aviation people, lots of government people. And then mine has lots of legs internationally. So I have a lot of listeners in Europe and a bunch, a bunch of listeners in like Australia, New Zealand, that part of the world. Yes, I, I will tell you, I have pulled up some of your rankings um, and I was amazed on how yours is actually worldwide in regards to the audience that you actually have. And I mean, there's so much information on your podcast that I was impressed that, you know, they, that you have different countries going on to it. And that's great. And I was like, how does it, you know, translate in regard to some of the information? Because I know that here in the States, we have specific government authorities, we'll put, that you have to do things within. And I was wondering, how does that actually work when you get into the larger markets? So pretty seamless. I mean, it's pretty, everybody's kind of fighting the same battle and governments are moving in, in different rates, but they're all moving towards this direction, towards this new understanding of how safety is. And that's going to be, a, I mean, it's a function of just 
that what's what's changed safety is not the industrial safety events it's not sprained ankles and cut hands what's changed safety is the fact that really really safe organizations organizations with really really good behavioral based safety programs or really really good industrial safety programs anywhere in the world still kill people and so the interesting thing about that is that the tools we use to manage catastrophic failure are way different than the tools we use to manage ankle sprains and so now the whole world is saying because the bars change right what's acceptable change the whole world is saying hey it's no longer appropriate to be the safest company in the world and kill 11 people we want to be the safest company in the world and not kill 11 people and so they start looking at fatalities much different than and that's a topic for a whole other podcast that's really i mean between you and i what i'm most interested in is fatality um catastrophic failure because we just the tools we use in traditional safety are not tools that help keeping people from dying because fatalities live in successful work they don't live in at risk behaviors they live in successful work usually pretty complex successful work that workers are in a position where they have to make trade-offs and those trade-offs normally work make sense it makes sense and i will tell you i was watching one of your presentations as was online and you had made a, a similar reference in regards of the things that will actually cause an ankle sprain will not be the same things that would kill someone right and i heard that and that's really that's genius that's, that's so simple right i mean that's the simplest thing in the world is basically what i say is the things that hurt people aren't the same things that kill people and i only know that just because i have to go and look at lots of fatalities so i help lots of companies out with fatalities and and i'm always really surprised that the things that hurt people the things they really care about aren't the things that actually kill people mm, that's very true now let me i want to ask you i want to ask you a couple of questions too about your continuing about your podcast if you don't mind with the pre-accident investigation podcast you have expanded the conversation about hop but you have allowed system thinkers on there and you specifically said that you did not just want industry leaders to come on Right. What was because they're boring? Because <laughs> they they always want to sell their crap. They want to sell their book or sell it. And you'll get this too. Is people always want to sell something? I want to sell my program. I want to sell my book. I want to sell my stuff. That's boring. I'll tell you. I've had a couple of people on, and they referenced that they would come on only if I referenced X, Y, and Z. And I was kind of amazed. I was amazed by that to some extent. Yeah, that's not surprising, right? And that's good for them, right? I mean, it's, I don't mean to judge them. They want to sell their stuff, but. But it's just like after a while, it's, have you ever gone to a conference and you go into the, the presentations, the breakout presentations, and everybody is wanting to sell you something? Try, here's the problem. Try my program. I'll help you. After a while, it just gets kind of fatiguing. So I'm really way more interested in people who actually do the work because the people who do the work, those people are really interesting to me. And then like, I'm super interested in like Jim Barker at Dalhousie. I'm I'm interested in a person whose entire career is studying organizational complexity or, you know, Edgar Schein. I love him. I'm, so I try to get people who are either right at the coalface who are working hard and making things happen because they know tons of stuff. Or I try to get people who are thinking about the next big problem. So would you bring that up? What do you see being the next big problem within our industry? Um, so I think the next big problem is probably going to be around. It's around it's it's around getting leaders to re-identify what the safety outcome definition is that they're using i mean the the outcome definition they use now is just wrong and so we're going to have to change what we measure 
because right now we measure a bunch of crap that's just not very important. Like it just, it's, you just, it really, it just doesn't matter very much. So if, if a guy is working and a piece of dust flies in his eye and he needs uh, some treatment, he needs a doctor, you know, I want him to go to the doctor because I want him to not lose his eyesight. That's going to ding me because that is a medical and I've got to report that to OSHA. But near as I can tell, it's an arbitrary thing that flew into his eye. It means if we don't fix it, he could lose his eyesight. It doesn't mean my safety program sucks. In fact, it has nothing to do with my safety program and everything to do with the fact that sometimes stuff floats around in the air. So let's not measure that. Let's not measure. Let's not try to prevent bad things from happening. Let's actually try to ensure that we continue to have good things happen. Because mostly what happens when we do our work is we don't have accidents. So mostly what you have are workers managing risk in real time in complex systems very effectively. Let's figure out how they do that well, and let's build systems that support the continuation of that. And that actually is how improvement happens everywhere. That's how you get better. That's how your podcast gets better. That's what makes a difference. Make sense? That makes sense. Now, do you feel that that will still fall under safety 2.0 or the new view of safety, or do you think that this will be a evolution into safety 3.0? I don't know. That's the future. Who knows? I mean, I honestly don't know. But I'm I'm less wrapped up in in uh, what crap's called, and way more wrapped up in what managers are doing. If I can get a manager to think differently about safety, then he asks different questions, or she asks different questions. And if they're asking different questions, then I get different outcomes. And if I get different outcomes, I'm good. Well, m- most managers, at least the, the ones that I've dealt with in, and within organizations, are more of I want to understand what is going to be the return on my uh, investment if I actually put any money into your safety program. It's funny you said I don't have those conversations. I've never, ever had a manager say, what is my return on investment? In fact, I've never talked to a manager who didn't want to have the best safety in the world. But maybe I, I you know, maybe that's the companies that ask me to come and help them. Because um, maybe if they ask me to come and help them, they're already kind of advanced. I, I don't think the return on investment argument is a good argument. I don't think it holds any water. I think really what managers want is to not hurt people. And any way we can help them not hurt people, they're into. Traditionally, what we've said is people get hurt because they don't care enough. If they tried harder or cared more, they'd get hurt less. Well, what we're going in and saying, no, people don't get hurt because they don't care. They actually almost always get hurt because they care too much. And they're doing work where they're doing lots of trade-offs. They're having to give up reliability for production or whatever. And that has sort of high risk. Make sense? It makes sense. Now, do you feel that when they actually will take a look at that, all of a sudden they see the value within safety? Because I've been involved in some locations or where they, where they well, turn around. And, just, mm-hmm. and it's probably just me. I'm not saying you're wrong at all. You're, I, you totally have your experience. I just have never had anybody have the discussion about safety being valuable. I, everybody I talk to completely. I mean, I talk to managers who take me aside. I mean, big, high senior, you know, CEO guys with teary eyes in a private room and say, I have no confidence we won't kill somebody tomorrow. And if they ask me that question, then I have a lot of work to do because the only two things a senior leader manages is confidence and capacity. They have to believe they are a safe organization and they have to believe they can make the organization function. 
and I believe that when you actually start talking to the people at the level that you're referencing, or those are more of the, the high-end executives, which are now held liable personally for the safety of the company. So do you think that that's why they were having those conversations? I think they were anyway. I mean, I think I think all those things, none of those things are new. Like, I don't, I don't think, I think the, so the, the argument on return on investment, somebody who desperately wanted to make their program have value started to measure. The problem with that is there's no null set. I don't know if you know what that means, but it's super hard to measure something that doesn't happen. So I can never tell you how many people didn't die because of my program. I can't count that because it didn't happen. Right. And so we tend to sort of build these artificial arguments that we add value to the system. Well, here's what I'll tell you. A reliable system is a very productive system. A reliable system is a financially advantageous system and a reliable system by definition is a safe system. And so we know when we're reliable and that's really what we're going for is we're not going for safety, we're going for reliability. When our system is reliable, when what we think is gonna happen happens, then that's safe, efficient, and effective and nobody gets hurt. Make sense? Makes sense. And I mean, I look at it too, just to the aspect is that we're glamorized salespeople. That's exactly what we are because we're selling something that you can't touch and you can't feel. Right. And, and I don't think of ourselves as, as salespeople. I think what we really are, are people that help sort of shift the philosophical underpinnings of what the definition of safety is. So really, you're more like a, maybe you're more like evangelist than you are like a salesperson. Because <laughs> what you're trying to get them to do is, is to believe something different. So right now they believe safety is the absence of accidents. And that's not true. I mean, that's 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 an outcome. But if you do high risk work and nothing bad happens, were you safe or were you lucky? Well, no one knows. I mean, they'll look at you kind of strange when you ask that question. What you want to talk about is, is safety is really the capacity to fail effectively. Or as David Woods calls it, margin of maneuverability. So thank you, Dr. Conklin. And I truly appreciate the time today for allowing us to do this interview here on Safety FM. And please remember to subscribe to the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast, hosted by Dr. Conklin. You call me Todd. Todd, Todd sorry, damn it. Todd, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, thanks, brother. Okay, thank See you, you later. Have a good one. Bye. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. Changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Safetyfm.com